Should we start? Since it's <laughs> not it's not ten twenty yet, which would be a really <laughs> good time for us to start. I should have a question about the paper. Sorry, yeah. When? Ask away. <laughs> um, are you doing? Are you memorizing also? Debatable. <laughs> All right, let's debate. Um, basically, officially, everything is due the last day of class. Unofficially. Um, if you're doing three papers, you should get your second one in by the last day of your day of class, and the third one in by the end of finals. Okay. Okay. Is anyone a senior? Um, okay. Well, same same deal. But luckily, if there's, I mean, if you were all seniors, that would be a little bit of a pain, um, because your grades are due really short. Senior grades are due really, really shortly after that. Um, but um, if you're the only senior, that's fine. Okay. Cool. Um, also by the last day of finals, and you'll have to make appointments with me um, to, to do it, to figure it out. Um, all right, did anyone watch the YouTube? <sighs> you forgot, yeah. You were planning to, just didn't get around to, to it. Been meaning to write. That's what uh, JM and DJ say about Ephraim. Um, uh, we didn't really have much contact with them for the last two years. We, just didn't get around to it, had been meaning to. Um, some of you have actually emailed me about like trying to figure out the plot of the Book of Ephraim. Um, <laughs> sorry? That's, that's diligence. Okay. What, trying to figure out the plot? <laughs> or foolishness. Well, there is, first of all, some of it is really, really hard. And we're not looking at the really, really hard parts. Um, that's for your lives. Um, no, really, this is a poem you should live with for a really long time, in my opinion. It's, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, as we say in Allington, it's crazy good. Or as my son likes to say, I don't know if you guys are probably too old for this, but you should know, um, what, what the youth of today are saying. It's my son, my son's term of praise is, this is absolute filth. Um, so that's like the best thing you could say about something. It's, it's, man, it was just absolute filth. How old is your son? 16. Um, well, this is, I mean, you guys probably said sick. Um, so this is, this is the inheritor of sick, which inherited from wicked. It's, it, there's always something interesting about the use of negative words <coughs> in a positive context. It's like, that's really just super bad, if you know what I'm, if, if, if you're picking up what I'm putting down. Um, so um, I hope at least some of this poem is haunting and powerful and... Um, a lot of it is obscure. Um, and I think that part of what happens is that um, you become aware of different things um, in the poem and different um, things that um, clarify themselves in the poem. Um, after living with it in your mind, after having it uh, be something that you return to from time to time, it's not a one-time poem in any way. Um, what J.M. says at the start of um, the second volume, Mirabelle, not quite the start, but in the second volume, is um, the spirits from the other world tell him that he's now got to actually write poems of science, to which his response is, poems of science, yuck! Um, but then he has to learn a whole lot of science. Um, and um, what he complains about is that the book of Ephraim, he let cool in a cellar, as he put it, 
for over 20 years, and he worked on it and um, refined it and um, made it in its way perfect or just about as perfect as something this long can be. Um, the later books are written over a much smaller um, time span, and there are completely amazing things in the later books, um, stuff that's even more amazing than anything in the Book of Ephraim. But there also, there's a lot, um, a lot more um, longer, tedious parts um, in the later books. But the Book of Ephraim is something that... Um, as I say, it's it's it really is perfected, and that perfection is it takes took took him a long time, um, and takes us a long time. Part of it is that it sometimes just gets um, crazy dense with puns, um, or with uh, multiple allusions, um, sometimes for reasons that you're supposed to wonder what the reasons for that are. Part of the interpretation of a dense poem like this as part of, we talked a little bit about Ulysses, part of the um, interpretation of a book like Ulysses is to ask why um, is that book so hard? Why does Joyce um, telescope so many things into single events, into single incidents? It's not just because he can, it's rather that the fact that such things are possible and the fact that in a book like Ulysses such things are necessary um, is illuminating um, for what's going on in the book. It has, it's not only that a bunch of themes are put together, but the, put a, the, the put-ability together, the put-together ability of those themes is itself another theme, um, is itself another part of the point. So the book of Ephraim, we're gonna we're, we have um, basically these these uh, last four classes to do it in. Um, the book of Ephraim is partly about that also, and um, what we've been looking at partly is um, in one way or another is who or what we took Ephraim to be. Again, to quote section I, what we find to get back to Maya having a dream in the city. Um, I'm going to say again that. Um, the plot of the whole thing, the main thing you need to know is that a lot of time passes, that um, the end of the book is taking place in the present, and the present is 1976, that there is um, a reference to people, since you were talking about Perot, Clinton, age of, is there another presidential age that is um, that comes out here? Yeah, yeah. What's the reference to Nixon? Either of you, uh, Nick or, or Justy? Do you? I mean, if you don't, don't, don't look it up. Just do you remember? I, I seem to remember something about like. There was a reference to Watergate. Yes. Yes. That's yeah, the summer of impeachment. Um, and so, what year is that? History majors, poli sci majors. Everyone should know that. Uh huh. Everyone should. S 1876, did you say? 1976. <laughs> um, no. 1976 was the election of Jimmy Carter over Gerald Ford. 
the assassination of MLK too. Oh, now I understand why my teachers were so discouraged when I was an undergrad. Um, Nixon was elected in 68. He was re-elected in 1972 after Henry Kissinger said just before the election, we believe peace is at hand, which was a lie. Um, but the idea was now we're going to make peace, so you should re-elect Nixon. Um, and the Watergate, Watergate break-in was 70 too, because that's when um, they were trying to make sure that they would steal an election, which Republicans rarely do. Um, and sorry, yeah, I mean that's not just <laughs> they, they, they wanted to make sure that they could steal it. In fact, one of the Watergate dirty tricksters died last weekend. Um, died yesterday, Charles Colson. No, no, no. He became a prison minister. He, he huh. after going to prison, um, Charles Coulson, after going to prison, he was reborn and um, became a minister and um, a, an, evangel an evangelist, an evangelical. Um, so, and anyhow, he just died at the age of 80. Um, so, um, Nixon reelected in 72, uh, supported by the very famous committee to re-elect the president or creep. You can't make this up. I mean, you could, but in fact, reality made this up. The committee to re-elect the president. <laughs> they, they sent letters out asking for money, and on the, on the envelope it said creep. Um, so that's one of those cases where the truth comes out. Um, and um, in 73 was basically when all the King's men, Woodward and Bernstein, um, started investigating, got information from Deep Throat. Is this ringing bells to people? Mm -hmm. um, and in 74 was, and then the tapes were discovered, um, someone being asked by Congress, and are there any records of this that I really hope you wouldn't ask me? Yes, Nixon taped everything. And then, so the tapes were released in um, early 74, and once they were heard, the House um, voted to impeach him in early August of 1974, and he resigned um, two or three days later. Um, I think it was August 8th, 1974, that he resigned. Um, so 1955 is when the book starts. 1974 is, um, we're getting references to political events in 1974, that hot summer of impeachment. Um, there are photographs that are old enough to vote, we hear at one point. So how old does that make those photographs? 18. 18. Um, recently 18. It had, the voting age had been 21 until Vietnam. Do people know that? Um, that is that people were being sent to die at age 17 and 18 in their tens of thousands, but they couldn't vote on whether they supported the war or not. So the voting, the Constitution was amended and the voting age um, went to 18. I believe, although I'm not certain about this, that that's the last constitutional amendment um, that passed, um, was, was reducing the voting age. Um, so um, it's now, let's just say, two decades later. Lots of stuff has happened. Um, in their lives. Um, among the things that's happened is that DJ's parents have gotten old and they've moved to New Mexico. Um, where they've moved to actually is very near um, where um, Trinity was. Trinity, anyone? 
What is that? Not the college in Dublin. No. Yeah, Trinity was the first atomic bomb that the atomic bomb tested in July of 1945. So the first atomic bomb ever exploded was the atomic test in, in July 1945 in Almogordo, New Mexico by the Manhattan Project um, just a month before um, atomic bombs were used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, so given the fact that no souls come out of Hiroshima because um, the codes that um, are soul-preserving somehow that lead to reincarnation, they're destroyed by radiation. So um, DJ's parents move out there. They're old. Um, DJ's father, Matt Jackson, is um, somehow um, demented and um, he's abusive of Mary Fogelsong Jackson, and yet somehow they still have um, that old person's um, satisfaction in each other's company when it's not violent, when they're not um, experiencing um, violence. DJ has to deal with this. JM has to deal with things. They're middle-aged, and they have to deal with middle-aged things now. So they start out as the Rover Boys at 30, um, they end up as hard to call them the Rover Boys anymore, but they end up at 50 um, dealing with things that they have to deal with. The father figures, if they're shaking rods at them, are no longer shaking um, the kinds of rods that they were early on. Um, if you look at the Dramatis Personae, look at the death dates of their friends. Um, many have died. Maya is dead, we know. W.H. Auden is dead. Um, Charles Merrill is dead. That is James's father. Um, I told you, right, but I'll remind you that Charles Merrill is the Merrill of Merrill Lynch. Um, so that's why J.M. Um, uh, was wealthy. Um, mm. And uh, he has a great line about his family in his, the first time he ever wrote about the Ouija board was in an early novel. Um, and in the novel, some people mess with an Ouija board. Um, but in a, a recent forward to the novel, that is um, a couple of years before he died, he wrote a forward to the novel saying that his attitude towards his whole family was, um, or towards, towards, actually towards his parents' friends. He and his father, although you wouldn't know it from the poetry, got along really, really well. Um, but his attitude towards um, his parents' rich friends were, if you're so rich, why aren't you smart? Um, so the um, um, things have happened. People have died. Um, and that allows us to look at one of the quotations in Q before we go back to Maya's dream. Maya is one of the people who's died. Doesn't Maya wind up talking to them? The yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Well, no, herself. Um, the capital letters aren't all Ephraims. Right, right. What happens is um, once people die and they contact them, I mean, the first capital letters are Simpsons, remember? Do you remember what the first capital letters they get are? It's help o save me, H-E-L-L-P space O space S-A. V space M-E, help, oh, solve me. Later, Maya will contact them from the other world. Auden will contact them from the other world. Um, the dead return to speak to them from the other world. 
Um, what happens if you do go on, which I hope you will, if you do go on with the Changing Light at Sandover, um, what you'll see is there are a lot of the dead speak to them. And what Merrill does, which is quite amazing, is he gives each one a different poetic form to speak in from the other world. So you can recognize <coughs> who's speaking from the form that they speak in um, once you get to Mirabelle and um, to scripts for the pageant. Um, and that's a, that's a really neat thing. Um, Ephraim always says, my dears. Um, so anyone who calls them Mecher or my dears, that's Ephraim. Yeah? Besides, um, like, cadence, is there any reason they use uh, um, acronyms? You mean JM and DJ? Yeah. I'd you mean them. any reason they do or any reason I do? Any reason they do. Yeah, because, they, because that's the abbreviation that Ephraim is using. Oh, well, then they use it on Ephraim, too. Yeah, you mean that sometimes Merrill just calls him E. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a kind of return. You're right. I mean, that's just, that's cadence, but it's also um, familiarity. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's uh, the way um, you'll abbreviate people in a letter um, at the time, in a tweet now, or a blog post. Um, it's, it's just a way of saying, of course you know who I mean by E. Um, and, um, you know, or if you get an email from um, a good friend, they won't necessarily write out their whole name. Um, so, yeah, so that's the, that's the reason. Um, so in section Q, um, let's look at the longest thing Ephraim ever says to them. This is from... October 26, 1961, so it's six years or so into their adventure. Um, sorry? This is section Q. The law, because at the bottom it says X61. X is October there. Um, that's a standard European but standard way of doing dates. That's how my grandmother always did dates when she wrote me letters. It was day month in Roman numerals and then year. It kind of makes more sense in a way. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so here's Ephraim. Am I in your room? So, so this is not the kind of Ephraim that we've been hearing about, but it looks like what we're getting here is a direct transcript, um, more of a direct transcript than some of Merrill's tidying ups. Remember he says that he has rhymed what Ephraim has to say for easy swallowing. Um, he's improved and corrected and edited and smoothed out and made more nimble some of the things that we get in capital letters. He quotes selectively. But here is something that is purporting to be an actual transcript and not a kind of written up transcript of their relation with Ephraim. So he asks this interestingly hesitant question. Am I in your room? And then presumably they say yes, or he knows that he is. And he goes on, so are all your dead who have not gone into other bodies. So what does that mean? So what does that turn out to mean? What does that mean? So are all your dead who have not gone into other bodies. Clay. It was kind of like, um, I was thinking about it when I read it, like it was kind of like an odyssey. When um, they go to the Hades and they're they're talking 
with the, the dead and like all of those dead relatives, the famous dead people come and visit. Yeah. There's a name for it in, in Greek, like like going to the underworld or something. Not sure what that is, but yeah, there's the descent into the underworld. But in this case, it's as though they live in the underworld with the dead, and it's Ephraim who's descending. Um, among the things that we didn't talk about as the meaning of Ephraim is the simplest of wish fulfillments that Ephraim stands for the immortality of the soul. That if you meet a spirit like Ephraim, what he tells you is you won't really die. That's a great thing to know, um, an obvious thing. Um, an obvious reason to want to think they're familiar spirits. So here's Ephraim, am I in your room? So are all your dead who have not gone into other bodies, that is who have not been what? Reincarnated. Um, let's take that um, as figurative rather than literal. Take that as a metaphor. How, whether you believe in an afterlife or not, or let's put it this way, if you don't believe in an afterlife, well, okay, what's striking here, I'm sorry, let, let's just notice what's really striking here, is the your in your dead. So am I in your room? That your doesn't particularly draw attention to itself, but it does set up our noticing the YR for five, five words later. So are all your dead who have not gone into other bodies. Now let's just say that that's not a comment about the afterlife. What is it metaphorically then? Yeah. Well, in a sense, all of the people who they've loved and lost are still with them. I mean, okay. Yeah. Some well, people, some people say in like a sentimental way all the time, but I think it means something really. Okay. And what would it then mean for the dead to go into other bodies? Yeah, Maya. That that like role that the dead person played has been taken over by somebody else. Yeah. So the metaphor here, which is a really deep one, is the dead will haunt you until you give someone else the role that they had in your life. If you're in love with someone and they die, then they will haunt you until you fall in love with someone else. Who reminds you of that person? Who must remind you of that person in some sense? because you're reminded, let's just say, in the simplest way of what it's like to be able to love. So here is Ephraim in just a line explaining that the dead are those, the ghosts are those who we haven't yet, or maybe never will, find another version of, another living <coughs> version of. So. What to take from this is that life is a process of people dying, people you love dying. It's not all life is, but this happens in life. Um, but recovery from that is that somehow what they are for you, other people become for you. And, and if they don't, if you can't give up mourning them, then they're the ghosts who will be in your room. So that's what Ephraim is saying here, is take this now as pure projection from DJ and JM. All your dead who have not gone into other bodies, they haunt you. They're in your room with you. It is easy to call them, bring them as fires within sight of each other on hills. 
beautiful, beautiful image. Anyone know where it comes from? Fires in sight of each other on hills. Sorry? Well, not it's like smoke signals, but it's actually fire signals. It's like the sequence in Lord of the Rings. Yes. I hesitated. You know what? I knew exactly yeah. what you were going to say. Yeah, I know, but where does that come from? Does anyone know? Celtic mythology. No. No. It's Aeschylus. It's the Agamemnon. That's how Clytemnestra knows the Trojan War is over. Um, the Agamemnon opens with a messenger um, seeing a fire far away on a hill and then saying that's the fire signaling the end of the Trojan War. Um, they established that they would set fires on top of hills within sight of each other and they would light a fire and then the next person, the next, the next watchman who was watching from as far away as you could still see the fire burning would set a fire and so on. Um, and that would be the signal all the way from Troy to um, Agamemnon or to um, um, Clytemnestra. And um, in fact, you, you may or may not know that visual telegraphs were used um, in the Napoleonic Wars. They were actually established, I think, in the 1790s um, so that messages could be delivered across France um, in something like an hour. Um, through semaphores, um, through very large semaphores, um, people signaling mile after mile from hill to hill. Um, and they were called visual telegraphs. When Morse invented the what we think of as the telegraph, um, the name telegraph was already in use. Um, there was something, uh, this kind of Flintstones version of a telegraph that was already in use. But so here it is easy to, to call them, bring them as fires within sight of each other on hills. So far away, but somehow you can see them burning, like burning the box. You and your guests, these times we speak, are within sight of and all connected to each other, dead or alive. So you are the connection between, among your guests. You and your guests, these times we speak, are within sight of and all connected to each other dead or alive. And then this completely amazing set of sentences. Now do you understand what heaven is? It is the surround of the living. So what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, and what it is for the dead to find heaven is in life. That is, that to the extent that Ephraim is, the, is a dead person speaking, and all that would mean is what the dead... I think the best way to put this is to say what the dead are in Merrill, what they say when the dead speak, what they are saying or what they are heard to say is what they would say if they could speak, if they had consciousness in another world, if there was an afterlife. That is, they're dead, and the dead can't speak. But if they protested the fact that they were dead and they couldn't speak, what they would say is, heaven is being among the living. 
So there are two ways to understand that sentence. The Dumbo literal way is we living people are surrounded by the dead, and that's great. That's heaven. Um, here we are on earth, but around us is heaven everywhere populated with spirits who are with us. But that's the wrong interpretation. That's the Rover Boys at 30 interpretation, but not the deep interpretation. The deep interpretation is the only place to find heaven is among the living, among those you love. That's the only heaven there is. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. So that's, in a sense, Robert Frost in a tweet. Now do you know what heaven is? It is the surround of the living. So that he goes on. Um, the patron is often dumb with apprehension, for it is extraordinary what we do. You communicate through my impartial fire. You materialize within my sight as figures in the fire. And a patron called up, knowing no such direct method, is nervous lest he expose too much. Our talk is to him blinding. So now we're back in the mythology a little bit, but the excitement of communication, the possibility of talk, that's what's really the amazing thing, and that's what living people do, is they talk to each other. For often he comes to our fire and his representative sits looming up, the hope and despair, the memory and the pain. Oh, my dears, we are often weaker than our representatives. It is a silent love. We are in a system of such silent but urgent motives. You and I, with our quick firelit messages stealing the game, are smugglers and so, in a sense, unlawful. The dead are most conservative. They come here as slaves to a new house, terrified of being sold back to life. And now about devotion. Uh, the, yeah, I think, I think we do need to read this whole thing. I mean, there's another really beautiful passage. but um, And now about devotion. It is, I am forced to believe, the main impetus. Devotion to each other, to work, to reproduction, to an ideal. That's the main impetus for what? For life, I guess, for caring about life. Devotion to each other, friendship and love, to work, to reproduction, to an ideal. It is both the mold and the clay. So we arrive at God or a devotion to all or many's ideal of the continuum. So where do we get the idea of God? It's not that we, are, that we practice devotion because there's a God. It's that devotion is what matters. And in order for there to be a place for devotion to go, we may arrive at the idea of God. So we create the molds of heavenly perfection and the ones above of rarer and more expert usefulness. And at last, devotion with the combined forces of falling and wearing water prepares a higher, more finished world or heaven. So here's this idea of, of the stream eroding, falling and wearing water. Again, just to give you um, a sense of not the plot, but both the mold and the clay of the Book of Ephraim. Um, J.M. is going to, um, when he goes out west, there's a place where he takes a piss 
off the side of a cliff, and the water just disappears. The urine, the stream of urine, just disappears. So at the very beginning of the poem, um, time is washing its hands of the whole story, appearing to say so. Time, the grizzled washer of his hands, appearing to say so in a spectrum beveled space above hot water. So we start with hot water so time can wash his hands. Um, there are waterfalls everywhere in the Book of Ephraim. And what they do is they erode everything away. So that's an image that, that's a, another through image. Um, here is the image of falling water. And Ephraim here underlines it. These devotional powers are as a fall of waters pushed from behind over the cliff of even my experience. A flood is building up. Earth has already seen the return of perfected souls from nine, that is from level nine. So the question, what happens when you get to level nine? We haven't thought to ask yet. But now Ephraim is saying they get pushed over the brink. They go up these nine levels and then they get pushed somewhere. There's a flood of souls building up. They get pushed and then perfected souls return to earth. Who are these perfected souls? Amenhotep, Kafka, Dante's Beatrice. One or two per century. For nothing live is motionless here. Our state is exciting as we move with the current. So remember that um, section from McCain's Falls that I read you about um, the current of water, the stream, since being gelded of my gold, black moods, gray moods come over me. Um, I sent you a PDF of that, plus several other poems as well. Um, where's my old sparkle of late? I feel so rushed, so cold. Shall I end up in a power station on charges, a degenerate, um, my spirit broken in a cell by now past anybody's power to shock? So our state is exciting as we move with the current, and devotion becomes an element of its own force. Oh my, I am too excited. So few up here wish to think. So that's what it's like among the dead. So few up here wish to think. Their eyes are turned happily up as they float toward the cliff. I want to do more than ride and wear and wait. And then this great moment. On the fairly lively ground of my life, I have built this high lookout, but find to my surprise that I am wisest when I look straight down at the precious ground I knew. That's the precious ground of life, of this life, of Earth. I find to my surprise that I am wisest when I look straight down at the precious ground I knew. There is ahead a series of pictures I believe I could show you to make clearer myself and what it is I think the force of the flood, what it is I think. The force of the flood has only advanced a drop or two down the face of the cliff and man has taken them to be tears. Now you understand my love of telling my life, for in all truth, I am imagining that next one when we crash through in our numbers, transforming life into, well, either a great glory or a great puddle. So all the dead will return is what he's saying. So there, that's all mythology of some sort. 
about the return of the dead. Um, but again, and that tells you a whole lot about the story or how the story is thematizing <coughs> what nevertheless becomes, I think, most beautifully and um, purely put in the now do you understand what heaven is. It is the surround of the living. It is being among the living. That's what heaven is. So let's go back to Maya's dream. Um, and again, if you want to see that dream, you now have a link on Latte for it. Who, one of you is doing um, Divine Horseman, right? Yep. So I, I would watch that movie. Yeah, you should. It's not that long. It's like, I think it's 14 minutes. The Divine um, Horseman is 15 minutes. No, no, not Divine Horseman, the um, uh, Ritual and Transfigured Time. So, Maya in the city has a dream. People in evening dress move through a blaze of chandeliers, white orchids, silver trays, dense with bubbling glassfuls. We already read this, but we'll do it again. Suavities of early talking pictures, although no word is spoken. One she seems to know has joined her radiant with his wish to please. She is a girl again, his fire-clear eyes turning her beautiful, limber, wise, except that she alone wears morning weeds that weigh unbearably until he leads her to a spring. There's the water source again, or source, oh wonder, in whose shining depths her gown turns white, her jet to diamonds and black veil to bridal snow. Her features are unchanged, yet her pale skin is black with glowing nostrils, a not-yet-printed self then it is time to go. Long trials, his eyes convey, must intervene before they meet again. A first, last kiss and fade out. Dream? She wakes from it in bliss. Um, so here's one, I, again, let me underline this. Here's one of several places where race comes in to the poem. Um, race is important and becomes more important in Maribel's in, I'm sorry, in the whole of the changing light at Sandover. Um, so does sexual orientation. So does the question. It, it all comes out as a question of privilege and what privilege means and how privilege is, um, is figured. Um, so I'm just drawing your attention to that for a moment. So what does that turn out to mean? Well. Maya has lately moved to the top floor of a brownstone. Whence, 106 years ago, a lady more or less her age passed respectably to the first stage. Now, explains Ephraim, in a case like this, at least a century goes by before one night comes when the soul, revisiting its death place here below, locates and enters on the spot a sleeping form, its own age and sex. So, century after they die, the dead want to return, at least briefly, to Earth. So they enter a sleeping form, their own age and sex. Easier said than done in rural <laughs> to populated areas. E treats us here to the hilarious upshot of a Sioux Braves having chosen by mistake a hibernating bear. So what happens? died in a cave and that's where the bear is. Right. And so a hundred years later the Sioux Brave comes to Earth 
and sees a sleeping bear, thinks it's a sleeping human being, enters into um, the bear's soul. And the hilarious upshot of that is going to be, um, we're going to learn about from what follows. Masked in that sleeping person then, the soul for a few outwardly uneventful hours, position shifting, pillow crease, a night of faint sounds, gleams, moonset, mosquito bite, severs what last threads bind it to the world. So there's this little experience of real life, of being asleep for a few hours. Beautiful account just of that experience of sleep. Position shifting, pillow crease, faint sounds, gleams, moonset, mosquito bite. And then the soul severs what last threads bind it to the world. Meanwhile, here comes the interesting bit. The sleeper's soul dislodged replaces it in heaven. Ephraim, now remembering her from that distant weekend, pulls a string. This time at least no grizzly, no grizzly on rampage transferring Maya's dream to his own stage. So what happened when the Sioux went into the grizzly bear? It went on a rampage. Yeah, the grizzly bear went on a rampage in heaven. Like, the <laughs> grizzly bear shows up in heaven and it's, what the? And just starts <laughs> clawing all the souls in heaven. So not so good. But Ephraim remembers Maya from the time she visited in section um, G, which we'll return to in a moment, and wants to see her now that someone, a respectable lady, has taken over her body, she comes to heaven in what she thinks is a dream, transferring Maya's dream to his own stage. And who was her admirer then? Can't you guess? So who was her admirer? The one who's, who's um, one she seems to know has joined her radiant with his wish to please. Who is that? Ephraim. Yeah. So she dreams of Ephraim, and that's what the movie is about. Who is her admirer then? Can't you guess? J.M. a little bit skeptical. But is that how you generally dress, you dead? In 1930s evening clothes? To, his, to which he responds, we are correct in styles the dreamer knows. This dream, he blandly adds, is a low-budget remake imagine of the Paradiso. Not otherwise its poet toured the spheres. While someone very highly placed up there donning his bonnet in and out through that now famous nose hailed the cool Tuscan night. So what does that mean? Dante's whole vision was an experience of this exact same thing. Yeah, Dante went to sleep one night and someone took over his body. He went to heaven and toured the spheres. While someone very highly placed up there, since Dante goes to the highest heaven in the Paradiso, um, enters onto earth and breathes in the cool Tuscan night. The resulting masterpiece takes years to write. More, since the dogma of its day calls for a purgatory for a hell, both of which Dante thereupon from footage too dim or private to expose invents. So now we're hearing the truth of the Divine Comedy, that is that Dante had to invent hell and purgatory, um, but heaven he experienced. His heaven though, as one cannot but sense, Tercet by tercet is pure show and tell. Then we have the parentheses about Maya's movie, Ritual and Transfigured Time, where Urzuli rides her like a horse. 
Um, we're going to go back to section M, but I just want us to look and end today with section G. Um, so Maya um, visits them, and this is uh, the second page of section G. Um, so Maya comes three lines down. Or, but oof, so much esprit has left us quite parched for a double shot of core. What's the joke there? Spirits. Yeah, spirits. As a drink and actual spirits. Right, a double shot of core um, because all this esprit makes us want some real human bodies. We want real guests, real live guests. And what's what's the um, pun? Esprit de corps. Cor. Yeah. So, so much esprit. Everyone know what esprit de corps is? It's the spirit of, it's a group spirit. Um, if you show cooperation with your posse, that's esprit de corps. Um, doing something for um, the whole group that you're part of, everyone enthusiastic about a group project. It's what actors really want is esprit de corps. Um, what dancers really want is esprit de corps, the spirit of the whole body. Um, so we need a real live guest, so Maya comes. And soon to a spell, in which you of course circled, binding tape, dream drums can be discovered laying down in flower Urzuli's heart emblem on the floor. So she lays in flower this heart emblem on the floor. We don't know what, quite what that's going to mean, but then let's get to what they discover, which is that this is the last life of JM. DJ, only a few more lives and he'll get to go to heaven. And that means that they're not going to be together. So the next two pages later, Ephraim, he says, this cannot be born. We live together, and if you are on the level, some consciousness survives, right? Right. Now tell me what conceivable delight lies for either of us in the prospect of an eternity without the other. So now what he's telling them is they won't stay together forever. That's an important plot and life fact. His answer is unrecorded. We get that couplet. The cloud passed more quickly than the shade it cast. For shadower of nothing, dearest heart, but the dim wish of lives to drift apart. So if you want a plot summary in one line, it's the dim wish of lives to drift apart. Times we felt, and then this amazing last section, so just bear with me. Times we felt returning to this house together separately, back from somewhere, still in coat and muffler, turning up the thermostat while a slow eddying chill about our anchors all but purrs. The junk mail bristling, ornaments in pairs, gazing straight through us, dust-bitten, vindictive, felt a ghost of roughness underfoot. The most attenuated of ghosts in this poem, the ghost of roughness. There it was, the valentine that Maya, kneeling on our threshold, drew to bless us, of white meal sprinkled then with rum and lit, heart once intricate as bird song. It hardened on the spot. Much come and go as blackened, paired the scabby curlicue down to smatterings, which even so promised to last this lifetime and then he won't say more. That will do. That's the too intense thing for him to go on with. 
um, their lives will drift apart. Yeah, that will do also mean that's enough? I don't think so. That suffices? I don't think so. It may have a hint of that, but I also think the main thing is he's saying that's all I'm going to say. Um, it's arguable, I agree, and I think it is both, but I think the dominant idea is that's all I'm going to say now. I'm going to end with that. It's not, it would be different if it would say promise to outlast this lifetime, which will do. Um, that will do, I think, is much grimmer than that. Okay, um, re 